Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Fascinating Nouns. Now, we have just received official certification as the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, as we arrive together at this curious nexus point, we explore the strange, the unusual, the offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, and all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, today's guest is a two-time TED Talk presenter, Dr. Deborah Gordon. Now she is gonna she's gonna explain and, and demonstrate why she is the world's foremost authority on red harvester ants. Now before we get to that, I want to do a little bit of business. So if you want to follow the show, you can check me out on Facebook, facebook.com backslash fascinating nouns. And a lot of the shows have pictures. Check it out on Pinterest, Pinterest backslash fascinating noun. You can always follow the Twitter feed at Daniel J. Glenn for the latest news and updates. And if you want to hear the show, you can listen to it on the website, fascinatingnouns.com in the episode section. And then you'll see show notes that will tell you everything that's happened on the episode. You can also, if you have a mobile device, you can listen to me on iTunes, Fascinating Nouns, obviously. And if you look on Stitcher, we're brand new to Stitcher. So those without I.O. devices can listen to us on Stitcher. Fascinating Nouns there as well. So let's get into this show. Why ants? Who cares about ants? Well, I care about ants. Ants are the most incredible, industrious type of insect that I ever came across as a child. I had an ant farm. I was blown away by these little guys. And it actually turns out that ants are prolific on every continent except for Antarctica. And the other amazing thing, and this is what uh, we're going to get to in just a second, Dr. Gordon's going to explain this a little bit better, but one of the fascinating things is that red harvester ants, they have this interesting like system of interaction. So they don't have any central control. There's, there's no one running the ants. They're all in business for themselves. They're independent contractors just doing whatever they do. Well, how do they operate as a colony? How does that work? Now, one of the things we've learned about these guys is that nothing they do makes sense except in the context of the hive. And how can that relate to, to other things in nature, such as the way your neurons fire in your brain or the way stem cells develop? Well, we're going to find out exactly what that is and also learn about these incredible creatures called ants. Uh, so let's just get right into it. I'm really excited about this one. So, Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm one of the strange people. I love nature, and I've always loved ants. I was never one of those weird kids who took magnifying glasses to them. I always thought that they were really fascinating creatures because they were so small and completely oblivious to anything that I was doing in my life. Uh, and yeah, I didn't really study them in any kind of academic setting because you are the foremost. I think you're the world's foremost expert on on ants. Are you not? Well, I don't know. There's no um. You know, we don't have um, uh, a way to appoint somebody as the, the foremost expert. But, um, I've been looking at ants for a long time, and like you, I really like how alien they are and how their world has nothing to do with our world. <laughs> not, not at all. Well, I'm going to appoint you the world's foremost expert as far as this show is concerned. So I'm going to refer to you as such, if that's all right with you. Okay. All right. Uh, so let's let's talk about how you how you personally got into ants. Why why ants and why red harvester ants? I got into ants when I was in graduate school, and I was looking for a system without central control 
that I could study and that I could observe easily. So I had been reading a lot about developmental biology and about how an embryo develops. And like an ant colony, there's no one in charge in an embryo, and yet some cells become liver and some cells become bone. And it all happens through interactions among the cells. And I was looking for a system like that where I could see everything because at that time and um, still to a certain extent now, to watch an embryo develop, you kind of have to let it grow for a while and then kill it and slice it and look at it and then let it grow, a let another one grow a little longer and so on. And the great thing about ants is that you can see all of these interactions among ants as they're happening. So I was looking for a large version of an embryo. Hmm. And I got into harvester ants, um, actually, for some of the same reasons, um, for visual reasons. So harvester ants are very large, and they're dark brown, and they live in the desert, so you can see these large brown ants again. You know, here's what's kind of funny about scientists. This is just my experience living in the world, is that for most people, for most scientists, they kind of view the world separate from nature, and it's, it's very focused, very hyper-focused. Like, for example, you're looking for, you know, how do stem cells turn into other cells, cells and how does embryos grow, and people analyze just that system as if it's independent of the entire world at large. And what I love with what you've done is something that I kind of a philosophy that I've always had is that these systems exist in nature everywhere. They've developed because they are the best types of systems. And ants, just like you said, have no central control. And you've proven that they function just like, you know, just like living cells in the human body, which I think is amazing and should be very eye opening to people who are doing forms of study on seemingly alien things um, when it's really not that alien at all. It's right under our noses, you know? I think it really helps to think like an ecologist about any system. So what you're talking about, looking at how a system works in relation to the world around it, well, that's ecology. Ecology is about interactions, how um, different animals or plants or anything interact with each other and how that relates to what's around them and how things change. And you can think that way about cells in the same way that we think about ants. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. As I was reading your various works, I just, I mean, the parallels that you draw are kind of mind-opening. Uh, so now, let me ask you a couple of questions before we get dive right into ants. Uh, how would you, how do you handle ant infestations in your house? I always take it personally when the ants show up in my house. Um, <laughs> yeah. They tend to arrive just as I'm writing a grant proposal claiming to know all about ants, and yeah. then there they are. Uh-huh. So I live in Northern California, and the ants that we see inside the house are um, Argentine ants, and it's an invasive species, and uh, they came from Argentina. They're all over um, the California coastline and all over the world wherever there's a Mediterranean climate. And they come inside two times a year when it's really hot and dry, and um, back when it used to rain, um, when it's cold and wet. So. Uh, they haven't been in much this year because it really hasn't rained, um, which is kind of awful. <laughs> yeah. And when they show up, um, I try to find where they're coming from and stop up the hole. Mm. So they live in nests outside, and then they the nests split, and a queen and some workers will move in along the pipes usually and come in through underneath the kitchen sink or somewhere like that, or sometimes they come in through cracks in the wall 
And so I do my best to find where they're coming in and stop them. But I have to say that when they're all over the kitchen counter, I tape out the Windex and oh, them man. away. So now I have, you know, my children have been with me enough on various ant field expeditions that they really object to the killing of ants. And so in my house, I am the, the evil ant murderer. Um, <laughs> and my children are saying, no, no, don't do that, don't do that. Um, but sometimes, sometimes I do. No, that's all right. Well, I mean, for me, if they're flying all the way from Argentina, they must be really big fans of your work. So I, uh, <laughs> all right, that's a bad joke. So when you were growing up, did you have an ant farm or did this all come later on? No, I didn't have an ant farm. I wasn't very interested in ants. I grew up in Miami Beach and the ants around were, first of all, fire ants, which are not mm. very friendly. Mm-hmm. And there were some big ants, which now I know to be carpenter ants, which I kind of thought was, were interesting, but I didn't think of myself as a scientist, and I didn't really pay that much attention to ants when I was a child. Okay, and final question before we jump right into ants. Are you someone's aunt? Um, yes. Are you? Well, I'm an aunt. An aunt? <laughs> I'm an aunt. Pardon. To several, to several people, yes. <laughs> that is great yeah. to hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about ants anatomically. What makes up an ant, that family? Ants are insects, mm. and they have three parts, a head, a thorax, and an abdomen, and um, they have six legs, which come off the thorax. Um, that's the first thing I look at whenever I see any animated ants or cartoons of ants is that they, that they put the legs coming off the thorax, because that's really where they come, like in um, movies like Ants, mm-hmm. um, A or Bugs Life, often people draw the two two of the legs that's coming off the abdomen so that the ant can stand up and walk around, but they <laughs> yeah. don't actually have to really do that. And they have antennae, and they smell with their antennae. Mm-hmm. So the ants belong to an order of insects called the Hymenoptera, so that's ants, bees, and wasps, and they're called Hymenoptera because they have a constricted waist, so in between the abdomen and the thorax, um, it goes in, oh. so it looks like a kind of waist shape. Yep. So like a nice hourglass figure. Yeah, wow, okay. and the, um, the ants have a bend in their antennae, so that's what distinguishes them from wasps. Hmm. So um, there are wasps that mimic ants, and you can tell ants from wasps by that elbow in their antennae. Isn't there, um, this just popped into my head, isn't there like a, I was reading an article about like a zombie wasp that are attacked by ants. Is this, is this a real thing? Does this sound familiar? Um, I don't know about zombie wasps, but yes, there are many um, wasps that attack ants and ants that attack wasps. And there are more than 14,000 species of ants and they have every conceivable kind of interaction with all sorts of other species. Holy cow. Now let's talk about, because this is one of the things I think that hooked me on ants first off, is their kind of relative physical capabilities in the ant world. You know, like the the amount that they can pick up, the amount that they can crush, what they carry, how long they work, what they do. Can you kind of give me that in terms of, what that would mean in terms of humans? I don't know the statistics. Um, people ask me that all the time. Clearly ants do carry much more than their weight. Um, but they're not really that industrious. So in any ant colony, there are many ants that just hang around doing nothing. And 
any particular ant doesn't work all that hard. So we get the appearance of industry because we see lots of ants doing things. But if you were to follow a particular ant, it would turn out that that ant might not do very much that day. Oh, <laughs> really? That's kind of co- they're very corporate in that way. They kind of look busy, but they're not really busy. <laughs> That's pretty That's cool. A good show. <laughs> really funny um all right so let's talk about the colony itself so what drew you to it and what is really fascinating about it is that a colony itself which is made up of thousands of ants really has no social con- like no central control there's no one telling them what to do um, can you kind of dispel the myth of the queen being in charge yes even though the queen is called the queen she doesn't have any authority or power she just lays the eggs So we call her the queen because she's the reproductive female. In some species of ants, there will be more than one queen, and they are like the ovaries of the colony. They lay the eggs. They make all of the workers and the daughter queens and males. So their job is to make more ants. But they don't tell anybody what to do. They don't decide who goes where. They don't um, delegate work. They don't have any... uh, special authority or power. Uh, what's, a, what's a daughter queen? Well, ants don't make more ants. Colonies make more colonies. Mm-hmm. And they do that in... Um, so colonies reproduce with other colonies. In many species of ants, the reproductives are winged. So if you've seen ants with wings flying around, those are the reproductives that produce new colonies. So in... Lots of species, it happens once a year, that all of the colonies in a population send out daughter queens, we call them gynes before they're mated, so um, daughter reproductive females and males, and they all go to some central place where they mate. So brothers and sisters don't mate within the colony, they mate with, uh, so a daughter queen from one colony will mate with a male from another colony. And so after this big mating aggregation, then the males just die. And then the newly mated queens fly off and start new colonies. And this is just within the individual species of ants, right? Because the way you described it, it looks like a big orgy, I guess, for lack of a better term, where there's just ants everywhere, you know, looking to hook up. Is that kind of how it works? Yes. The flying ants, the the reproductive, um, all get together in this big mass of ants and that's where they mate. But it's only one species at a time. Oh. Oh, the group. So the group of mating ants is only one species. They kind of... Yes. They space so it out. There they... are, yes. If there are 20 colonies in the neighborhood, then somehow they manage to coordinate to do this all at the same time, which is an interesting <laughs> question in itself. Yeah. And each colony sends out its winged females and males and they all go to some central place and they mate and then the males die and then the newly mated queens fly off from there and start new colonies someplace else so that's how colonies make new colonies and the queen in each parent colony is producing that colony's reproductive to send out to that year's mating flight and they kind of know when to go out, right? Like there's some kind of signal that all the, you know, all the red harvester ants are like, oh, today's our day to, you know, and then they pop out of the, the nest and then they go meet, right? Like, well, 
Yeah, it, it's different in, in different species, but in harvester ants, it's definitely linked to the rain. So they oh. have their mating flight in the summer. They're nesting in ground that is so weak, it's like rock. Mm. And I don't think that the queens can dig unless it's after rain, which softens the soil. Oh, that makes sense. So during the season when it's raining a lot, which is in the summer, you see the winged ants coming up and looking around and um, maybe about to fly, and often the workers pull them back in. You know, not today, not today. (laughs) And then on some day, if enough of the males manage to go, they put out a scent that's very strong and attracts other males, and Mm. eventually when it gets strong enough, then the females fly too. So it's kind of a question of accident in part. Well, what has to happen is that enough male ants have to get out to put out enough pheromone to get the rest of them out. So it's not really that everybody says, okay, today's the day. But enough of them say today's the day to get everybody else going. They hit like a critical point, like a critical mass of scent that gets the women to come out. Uh, So you raised a couple of points. I'm going to try to get back to them. So the first, which I think a lot of people find interesting, is this is literally the guy's only job in the colony, right? Like they and they don't and they don't live very long. Yeah. So unlike again, unlike the movie ants, um, they're only alive for a few weeks and that's it. That's all they do. Just, and, then, and then the men disappear basically out of the history of ants until the next mating season, right? Because the colony is all female. Is that correct? That's right. So the colony consists of sterile female workers. Those are the ants you see walking around. And then one or more reproductive females that we call queens. And the males are only around for maybe a few weeks in between the time that they're produced and the mating flight. That's how it happens with the harvester ants. In other species of ants, it's different. For example, in the tropics, they have many mating flights in a year. Some species have many mating flights in a year. So they're always producing males, sending them out. Then they make more and send them out. So the males may be around for longer, but they're not doing anything except waiting to go out and mate. Wow. And so so that's really almost like... um it's like an Amazon kind of culture in a way. Like the women rule, they take care of everything. It's um, it's very progressive and it's very egalitarian, right? Well, it's egalitarian except that, that nobody has any power and nobody really rules. Right. But it's definitely all female. Yeah. <laughs> and the other cool, the other really interesting fact, and then I promise we'll move on from reproduction. Uh, this this blew my mind too. Is that once the um, once the females mate. They live for 20, 15 to 20 years, and they reproduce using only the the sperm you gained in that first mating session, right? That's right. That's so crazy. A harvester ant queen can live longer than that, maybe 20, maybe 30 years. The oldest one that I have at my long-term study site is 30 years old. And they go on producing all of the ants in the colony year after year using only the sperm from an original mating session in which they may have mated with many males all on one day and then they store the sperm for the rest of their lives. Wow. I mean, there's so many mind-blowing parts of that. Not only the the fact that this is, we're talking about an insect that lives 30 years. Dogs live 15 years. You know, you're talking about a very, you know, base type of, and the life form scale, a very, you know, less evolved 
thing that lives 30 years and it has not only can it, it has to keep the sperm at you know viable levels and viable temperature for 30 yeah. years that's crazy yeah. yeah i mean that just blows my mind uh so you, you mentioned the site that you go to this is really cool so you go you've been studying this site for how many years now I've been censusing the same population since 1985, wow. since graduate school. I never thought that I would be doing it this long, but after that I've started, you know, every year, um, of course, I'll keep going because I've been able to track about 300 colonies year after year and figure out how long they live and how their behavior changes as the colony gets older and larger. Wow. And so, and so you're still studying a colony that still exists then? Because if you've been doing it 30 years and the oldest one you know is 30 years, I mean, it's still kicking then, right? Yeah, that one. I mean, a lot of them have come and gone. Yeah. So it's not the same 300 colonies year after year, but the population has stayed at about 300 colonies. Wow. Uh, and this is in Arizona. I, won't get, I don't want there to be any groupies coming to find you, so I'm not going to give you the exact location. But this is in the, uh, the northern part of Arizona or the southern part? Uh, in the southeast corner. Southeast corner of Arizona. Wow. Uh, so tell me, so tell me a little bit about how what's a what's a colony like? Like what goes on? What are the jobs? What what happens? Well, a colony starts out with just the founding queen, okay, and no ants. And in the first six weeks, she makes the first batch of little tiny workers. And many species of ants do this. The first workers that the queen produces are very small, and then after that, they go out and get the food, and they build the nest, and then it grows, and in a harvester ant colony, it grows pretty slowly so that a one-year-old colony might have 500 or 800 ants, and a two-year-old colony might have 2,000. But by the time it gets to be five years old, it has 10,000 ants, and it stays at that size um, year after year until eventually when the queen dies, there's nobody to make more ants, and once the ants have died, that's it. Then the colony dies. The ants live only a year. So every year she has to make the ants over and over. Whoa. And there are a lot of different things that ants do. Um, inside the nest, they feed the young ants. So ants, like many insects, start out as eggs, and then they are larvae, and then they are pupae. The larvae, you can think of the caterpillars of a butterfly, and the pupae are kind of like the cocoons. And then they emerge from the pupae as adults, and then they don't grow after that. So the ants that you see walking around are adult workers. Now, in an ant colony, it's the larvae that consume most of the food, especially the protein. So part of what every ant colony has to do is to feed the larvae so that it can make new ants. And that goes on in a harvester ant colony like any other colony. And often it seems it's the youngest ants that do that. So when they hatch out of being pupae, they're right there among the other uh, larvae and pupae, and they turn around and start feeding the younger larvae, feeding oh. their younger sisters. They just get put right to work. That's right. That's and then um, another thing that happens inside the nest of a harvester ant colony is taking care of the food. So harvester ants eat seeds. They're called harvester ants because they... They go out, they collect seeds, and they bring them back and store them inside the nest. And they store them, it seems, in um, categories. So they have, um, often when we dig up nests, we find um, piles of big seeds together and other piles of small seeds together. And some of the seeds they have to husk. So there are ants inside the nest storing the seeds and husking them and 
um, probably moving them around to keep them dry because if they get wet, they germinate. Oh, so, <laughs> oh that'd be crazy. Um, but inside the nest, there's lots of ants that just hang around doing nothing. Um, I think that counts of the numbers of ants and the numbers of ants doing things. And also from what I see when I keep them in the lab and I can see everything they're doing. And I've learned the most about what the ants are doing outside the nest because that's a lot easier to see than inside the nest. Right. Um, these nests go down for two meters, basically in a rock. And to get them out of the nest, we have to get in there with pickaxes. And um, it's a big, big production, takes all day. And um, so I have watched ants a lot in the lab, but it's hard to see what's going on deep in the nest in the field. But you can see a lot about what they're doing outside the nest. So outside the nest, I divide what I see them doing into four tasks. So um, the first is foraging. That's going out in streams of ants that then disperse and search around for seeds and bring them back to the nest. So the forks go out in these long streams that are sometimes pale, sometimes more like a big blob. Um, so that seeds and they bring them back. Then there are the ants that I call patrollers. They come out early in the morning. There's not very many of them. And they just move around the foraging area, and then they come back. And it's their safe return that tells the foragers that it's okay to go out. So they're there not really to find anything, but to um, signal that it's not a day where it is raining so hard or the wind is blowing so hard that you can't get back. And they also interact with the patrollers of the neighboring colonies, and they help take care of the business of trying to avoid overlapping with the neighbor's foragers. So that's the second one, the patrollers. Then there are the ones I call the midden workers, and they basically sort out the garbage on top of the mound. So these species makes these big mounds that are covered with pebbles. They bring in the pebbles from around the foraging area, and they put into the pebbles a colony-specific odor that tells the ants of that colony that they're home and maybe tells ants of another colony that it's um, not okay to go inside there. So the midden workers move stuff around on the refuse pile and uh, deal with these pebbles, and they take care of maintaining the odor on the surface of the mound. And they're the answers I call the nest maintenance workers, and they work inside the nest. So these ants plaster the sides of their chambers with moist soil, and it dries to a kind of adobe finish, and then they take the dry soil out. Nest maintenance workers are the ones who carry stuff out. And so what you see outside the nest is ants coming out with something in their mandibles. They go out a little way, put it down, and turn around and go back in. So they're working both inside and outside. Wow. Now, let me take a step back before we get into what the what each individual job is. I, just, I, I forgot to ask this question because this is kind of crazy too. Because when people think of ants, they think of this almost like a prolific insect that's everywhere all at once. You know, like they're all over the ground. They can be in your house. They can be everywhere. But in truth, the colony, because you said that, you know, they make new colonies. The colony mortality rate is actually pretty high under two years, right? And even the, even the queens, they don't, last, they don't always last very long out in the field, right? Yeah, well, harvester ants are a pretty long-lived species, and um, the mortality for them is highest not once they've established a colony, but in the process of the mating flight. So all of these colonies are sending out new 
um, unmated queens and males, and if you count the numbers that show up at the mating flight and even the numbers of new nests that they make on the first day, when I come back the next year, 99% of them are dead. So they don't manage to make it through the mating flight. I think they get eaten, they die, uh, they get eaten by lizards and birds, they die of um, just drying out. And even in the first year, if they manage to make a nest, they might not manage to make enough workers to get enough food to keep them alive. So the mortality is high there. But there are many different species of ants, and it goes very differently in different environments. So what's true for harvester ants in the desert, which is kind of a, mm. a slow, steady kind of environment, is very different, say, in the tropics where everything changes really fast. I guess that makes sense. Just the numbers that I'm crunching about that, that you had in your book were the mortality rate of the queens, the unmated queens, is 99%. And then once a colony is started, which is 1% of those ants start a colony, before two years, the mortality rate is 5%. So that means only f- that means 5% of the colonies make it to two years, and then it goes up to significantly higher if the colony is five years and older, right? That's right. Those are... So once they make it to the eight years old, I think what's happening is that they have enough ants to do the interactions that regulate their behavior enough to forage enough to get enough food to stay alive. That makes sense. So it all comes down to what you're interacting with because they use the pattern of interactions to decide what to do. I think sometimes if they don't have enough interactions, they just don't get things done. Oh, that makes like not enough stimuli. Uh, and so the other thing I wanted to touch on is when you say you, so you actually count the ants when you, so you've, you've dug up ant colonies before, uh, and that's a pretty invasive process, right? Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> I mean, it's really fascinating to see. Um, digging up a nest is um, often really hard for me because it's really fascinating to see what's in there, but I hate destroying this beautiful structure mm-hmm. that's so old and has been made by so many ants over so many years. Yeah. So it's a, it's a trade-off, but um, it's very hard work to dig up an ant colony because the ground <laughs> that they're nesting in is very, very hard. So we use pickaxes and then chisels, and you have to, to chip away at the rock to get the ants. And you count them all, right? Like you count each individual ant. I assume there's a margin of error, but you basically try to count each one, right? We did a study to try to figure out how a colony grows. And so what I did was to take ants from colonies. Well, what I did was to dig up colonies whose ages I knew because I do this annual census Mm -hmm. to count all the ants. So we dug up some one-year-old colonies and counted the ants and two-year-old and three-year-old and four-year-old and so on in order to find out how the colony grows as it gets older. Mm-hmm. And that's how we learned what the average size is of a mature colony, because after a certain age, they didn't get any bigger. So yes, for a while, I think we did um, 12 or 14 colonies where we counted all the ants. <laughs> and there's 10,000 plus ants in there, right? I mean, five years and older. Yeah. <laughs> so what we did was to bring them up to the lab, and uh-huh. we had them in boxes, and then we sat there with counters, moving ants from one box to another, while somebody read aloud to us to keep us entertained. <laughs> That's incredible. Now, oh you can all God. be listening to podcasts, but there weren't podcasts then. So no, we had to read from books. 
This would be, yeah, this has been a great podcast to throw on and while you're counting ants for all those ant counters out there. Uh, all right, so let's get back into the jobs. Uh, how do ants get those jobs? I mean, is this nepotism? Do they, you know, do they have to show that they're qualified? And, and not only how do they get the jobs, but how do they learn the jobs? We don't know how ants learn their jobs. It looks like they just do it. And so that's a, that's a mystery. We don't know how they figure out what to do. But keep in mind that it's not rocket science. So an ant basically either picks something up or puts something down. <laughs> yeah. so either it goes out and it finds a seed and picks it up and brings it back, or it picks up something that's refuse inside the nest and goes out and puts it down and comes back in. So that's about really all there is to it. <laughs> when you break um, it down like that, it doesn't sound very impressive. <laughs> yeah, um, it's still an interesting question. How does the ant know what to do? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, especially because an ant moves from one task to another. So when um, an ant is younger, it works inside the nest and eventually moves to work outside the nest. And there is a flow of ants from one task to another. And whether an ant does something on a particular day depends on what the colony needs that day. So an ant doesn't wake up in the morning and say, okay, today, you know, I'm assigned to be a forager. An ant does flow through um, on the scale of weeks from tasks inside the nest to tasks outside, like foraging. Hmm. But on any given moment, whether an ant forager whether a forager actually forages. So in any given moment, whether an ant is active doing its task depends on what's happening all around it, and in particular depends on its interactions with other ants. So you have to think of it really as two processes. One is which ant is likely to be doing this task today, if anybody is, and then second, the process that I call regulation, what determines whether that ant is going to do it right now? Mm. Yeah, because that's a very complex thing that um, I want to get into in a second. Because the whole the whole idea of interactions and how they're kind of turned on and turned off, uh, almost like a, a robot in a way, is, is really interesting. Um, but let's let's talk about let's let's talk about the jobs really quickly, and then we're going to jump into the interactions. Uh, so so in, the the sun comes up, and it's a brand new day on the ant colony. What yes. happens first? First, the patrollers come out, and they, they kind of peek outside, and then they eventually come out a little further, and then they go back in, and then they come out, and as it gets warmer, eventually they go out, and they take a kind of meandering path all around on the mound, which could be a meter wide in a mature colony, and then all around the foraging area. And then they come back. And by the time they start coming back, some of the ants, the nest maintenance ants are carrying stuff out, and it, then when the patrollers are returning fast enough, which we've found out is about one per 10 seconds, that's enough to trigger the foragers to go out. So the foragers are all waiting up there inside the nest, and they have come up, we think, because it got warmer and because there's light on the entrance. Mm. And when the patrollers come back fast enough, when enough of them are coming back, then the foragers go out. And then um, the patrollers go back in, the nest maintenance workers go back in, and it's just foraging time for the next few hours until it starts to get really hot, and then the foragers become more reluctant to go out. So eventually more foragers are coming back than going out. Mm. And as the foragers are starting to come back, 
then there's another spurt of nest maintenance. So the nest maintenance workers come darting out, carrying all the stuff that's accumulated, and then they go back in. And then they're closed for the afternoon until it gets cool enough to come back out again later. And then you repeat the cycle. Uh, I think so. I don't know that much about what happens at night because um, I've never really wanted to go out and study them when the rattlesnakes are <laughs> That makes sense. Well, that's fair. Uh, so now when, when the patrollers come out, do they basically discover a food source? And then the foragers come. And I guess we, you know, we didn't talk about this enough because this is really important to kind of get you know, to put uh, the perspective on ants and really understand how they view the world. This is all scent operated. Right. I mean, this, right. so how does that work? Um, well, most species of ants can't see very well. There are a few that can see, but most ants can't see, and all ants rely very heavily on their sense of smell. So they smell with their antennae. Uh, they can distinguish a huge range of different odors, different chemicals, and they're using mostly smell to navigate the world. The um, patrollers don't actually find a food source in this species. So mm. And uh, harvester ants are different from the kinds of ants that most people see on their kitchen counters that tend to make trails that recruit other ants to a, a, a delightful food source, like some crumbs you left on the table or your mm-hmm. pizza crust. Yeah. But the harvester ants are foraging for scattered seeds. So there is no point, if one ant finds a seed, there's no point getting other ants there to collect them because there won't be another seed there because the seeds are not mm. distributed in little clumps. So the patrollers don't find food sources. They really only direct the foragers to go towards the direction where they have met fewer neighbors. Mm. So because everybody is looking for scattered seeds, it doesn't pay either side, either colony, to forage someplace where another colony is foraging because either one might find the seeds that are out there. So they do have a system to avoid overlapping, and that's part of what the patrollers do. But there's no recruitment to particular food sources because the food is so scattered, it's not worth it. That makes sense. And the other thing that I want to point out is that, you know, when, when they find a food source, they do they lay the, the scent trail on the way back? And, and the reason why I'm asking this is um, the point I want to make to everyone listening is that when you see that kind of weird little trail that every single ant seems to be following the exact same zigzaggy pattern, that's because the ant first ant laid down, you know, like a, a stink behind them, right? Yes. So the ants, the species of ants that make recruitment trails, uh, one way that they do it is that some ants are out anyway looking around, and so they have to do that for anything to happen. And they find something, and on the way back they put down a chemical on the ground, and then the ants at the nest follow it back to the food source, and when they come back they also put down a chemical on the ground, and so it keeps reinforcing um, the trail until eventually there's nothing left to eat there and then uh, eventually nobody has put down any scent and they go look someplace else. Mm. So um, many species of ants do that. There are species of ants though that put down trail as they go, even on the way out, like the Argentine ants that we have in California. Mm. So there are all sorts of different ways to put down trails, but not all ants do that and the harvester ants don't do that. And when they have a, a foraging trail, like they, they fight this trail out to the bitter end, right? You were talking about some experiments where you would put like nutritious food and a trail over it, and they would walk over the food to get to wherever the destination was and completely, you know, forego getting any of the food that's much closer. 
Yes, I've never been able to get harvester ants interested in my cooking <laughs> or any food that I could supply for them. Oh, they like millet, sorry. so I, you know, now I know I can sometimes tempt them with millet. But it's not that they were trying to get to the destination. Oh. It's that the uh, direction that the foragers go to search at random in a scattered area for scattered seeds, the direction that they go can't be changed by food once they have set that direction. Oh, but I it's see. not that they're all going to a single place. It's that they're all going in a certain direction, and a little pile of juicy oatmeal along the way isn't enough to make them change their mind. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, that's really funny. Uh, so one other quick question. This is just a quick side note, but I just, just popped into my head. So these, these colonies underground are huge. Do they ever, when they're building the nest, do they ever run into other like colonies next to them? I mean, do they ever like actually break down a wall and like pop into someone else's nest? I think that there are species of ants. I know there are species of ants that may run into um, other colonies and all sorts of other things when they're digging in the ground. But those are species that live in much softer ground. So these ants are digging in, in rock and mm. it's actually a, a cone shaped structure the outer edge of the mound is the outer limit of the cone. And then it goes in. So they don't go sideways. Okay. And it could be another 8 or 10 meters to the next nest, and they just don't make tunnels like that. Now, there are species of ants that do that. For example, fire ants that we um, now have in the southeast and um, into Texas, those ants make foraging tunnels underground, so they're always digging around everywhere. Uh, underground, and that's how they collect food, and mm. they do bump into each other's tunnels. But the harvester ants don't do that. And so, how did, that kind of begs the question: like, what does ant fighting look like? I mean, what what do they fight over, and how do they get into it? Again, there are all kinds of different ways that ants fight. Uh, harvester ants aren't very big on fighting. They have a few fighting days. It looks like uh, in a given year. And when they fight, what happens is that one ant grabs onto another with its mandibles. And so the ant tries to pull the other ant into pieces. So it grabs onto <laughs> wow. place just in between the thorax and the abdomen where there's like a little stem um, called the petiole that connects the thorax to the abdomen. And in harvester ants, um, sometimes they stay attached so long that the attacking ant dies from desiccation it just dries out and its jaw muscles are strong enough that it just stays attached and the rest of the ant breaks off so in the fighting season you see ants walking around with the head of their attacker clamped on and i think they have to wear that for the rest of their lives because it just won't come off <laughs> that's great and no one can t i guess they don't even know enough to take it off there isn't like a a protocol for removing enemies from your waist I don't think so. I don't think they have a, a tool for that. No, um, that's really, and they can get into the hole into the into the uh, back into the nest. I, mean, I imagine if yeah. you have a big head on oh, there. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. The head is the head is small enough. They can fit. Yeah. Huh. Um, so the uh, let's talk about some of the interactions, like this whole system of interaction between ants and how, because you've studied how they can kind of switch tasks, and I also want to get into. Uh, this this was also a stat I had I knew nothing about is that there are thousands of ants that are just hanging around doing nothing in the nest. That's right. Like, That's right. Let's talk about them well, first. Let's talk about what does that mean doing nothing? What are they actually doing? Well, they're kind of milling around. Sometimes they groom each other. 
not much. <laughs> they, they're literally <laughs> just oh. hanging out. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, they might be thinking deep thoughts, but right. we don't have a way to know about that. <laughs> right, right. So how do, you, how do they get turned on then? Like, how do they, like, switch on and then start doing stuff? So ants smell with their antennae, and when one ant touches another with its antennae, it can smell whether the other one is a nest mate and also what task it's been doing because ants are covered with a layer of grease. They're long-chain fatty acids, and they carry the colony-specific odor, and they also change according to what the ants are doing. So, for example, an ant out in the sun starts to smell different because of the effect of the sun on the chemistry of the mm. hydrocarbons on its body. So we've learned that ants use just the rate at which they touch each other to decide what to do. So each ant is using its recent experience of antennal contacts with other ants, and the only message really is the fact of having met. And this pattern of interactions creates a network, and that's what's regulating the behavior of the colony. So, for example, foragers, a forager doesn't leave the nest until it has enough contacts with returning foragers with seeds. And mm. so it's these repeated contacts. It's smelling many ants coming back with seeds that tells the forager to go out and look for a seed itself. So it's actually a simple kind of positive feedback where the more food there is out there, the faster ants come in and the more ants go out because they're meeting more returning foragers. And so that's how they switch tasks when they realize that what they're doing probably isn't as beneficial. Uh, and then they switch with enough positive feedback to do something that's maybe more beneficial to the colony. Well, that story about the foragers, um, that algorithm that the foragers are using is just within the foragers. Between oh. task groups, it's a little different because not every ant can do every task. In the harvester ants, there's a flow of ants from nest maintenance, which is um, done by ants partly inside the nest, out to foraging. So a nest maintenance worker can become a patroller or a midden worker, and a any ant, a patroller or a midden worker or a nest maintenance worker, will switch to forage if a lot of food becomes available. So foraging is the sink. So the process is really about whether it's worth it to switch from something else to become a forager. There mm -hmm. are way more foragers than ants in any of the other tasks. Hmm. Uh, there's one thing you, that um, I want to make sure everyone heard because you said it very quickly, but this is really crazy. They have a colony-specific odor, which means that all of the ants of a colony smell a certain way and that other ants can tell what colony they're from or what nest. If they're, I guess if they're only a fellow nestmate, they probably don't have a, a list of all the other nest smells in the area. That's right. Well, we think what happens is that each ant, as it is, um, each ant as it grows up in the ant colony, if you like, or anyway, as it emerges as an adult in the ant colony and meets many nest mates, um, over and over meets a lot of ants with pretty much the same odor. And it um, creates a kind of a boundary between what smells like us and what's different. And then over time, as it meets more and more ants, and if it goes outside and meets ants of another nest, it uh, keeps adjusting that boundary so that overall the colony has a way to distinguish us from them. 
So not every ant gets it right all the time, but ants more or less recognize a collection of odors of their nest mates as being us and anything that's really different as being somebody else. I'm going to give you a real-world application of your work that I bet you had never thought of before. Okay. In, uh, in the TV show The Walking Dead, the zombies are, operate almost very similarly to ants in a way, where they're kind of milling around. Some of them are doing things. Uh, they don't interact with each other, so that's the part. I'm really just yanking this out of my keister on the fly. But they, they, don't, but they do change tasks based on external stimuli. And they know each other. They know what zombies smell like. And you can fool a zombie, specifically in the Walking Dead mythos, by rubbing, you know, zombie guts all over you. And then you can kind of walk amongst them, which is very ant-like in a way. Yes, it is very ant-like. I watched this movie with my uh, teenage daughter, um, which was something about Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. Um, But they did interact with each other. The The zombies did interact with each other, which... I mean, so that's a, that would be a crucial difference because the ants need to interact with each other to regulate the whole thing. It wouldn't work mm. otherwise. That makes sense. Uh, if this winds up in your next paper, um, just <laughs> feel free to I'll credit, credit me. Okay. Yeah, credit, <laughs> credit me on, on the cover. Uh, now, there's also one other thing I wanted to touch on. Um, this, this is kind of, this was in your book. It's slightly unrelated. And since we took just a quick sidestep, I want to ask you about it. There, you were talking about how the red harvester ants, there was another species of ant, which basically because of the hot sun and, and because of the need to conserve water, that it would... Uh, it would h- kind of hide the light. It would like stick a couple of guys inside of the nest hole so that the sunlight couldn't get in there and tell the, the red harvester ants it was time to come out. And then they would do their harvesting and then they would kind of like, you know, like whistle. And then the other guys would come out of the nest and then the red harvester ants would be like, oh, it's daytime, but now it's too hot to go forage in a way to kind of stop the red harvester ants from getting the food. Is that, does that really happen? It's because it's kind of like nerds getting stuck in a locker, you know, while the yeah. jocks take them around to the, the school. Well, part of the story is right, but not the nerd stuck in the locker part. So um, <laughs> yeah. the bad guys plug up the nest of the harvester ants with dirt, not with ants. Oh, okay. So, okay, okay. They, so what happens is that the ants that forage at night, early in the morning before the harvester ants come out, fill up their nest entrances with dirt, and they tend to focus on younger, smaller colonies. So they're kind of like um, bullies of the... Mm. With the playground there, and they so they plug up the entrances of the harvester ant colony, and so the harvester ant colony doesn't know it's morning until eventually, I think because of the heat, they dig themselves out and they come out, but by the time they get out, it's late, and they can't forage when it gets really hot. <laughs> so by doing this, the the bad guys, the um, the Athenogaster, Novomester, the name of those um, ants keeps changing. They keep the harvester ants from using up the resources that they're competing for because they're stuck inside during their normal foraging time. What a bunch of jerks. <laughs> it's really funny, though, but it is kind of, it's kind of a jerky thing to do. Um, all right, so let's talk about... Um, I think we've talked about everything on on plant plant interaction because I want to move into this next part, which is kind of the new stuff that you're doing, which is really cool. And it's also very cinematic, moving on from The Walking Dead. Ants in space. Right. Well, we had an experiment last year on the International Space Station. It's just about a year ago where we asked ants to do collective search. 
So collective search is a problem that um, is of great interest right now in robotics. It's the question of how a group of searchers ought to organize themselves to cover mm. ground most effectively mm. without anybody in charge. And um, the problem is actually a trade-off that has to do with density. So if you have enough searchers, so suppose that you um, lost a diamond ring in a soccer field mm -hmm. and you've got a thousand friends to go find the diamond ring, you can each search very carefully in the grass right around your feet because there'll be somebody near you searching over there. But if you only have a few friends, you have to get organized to say, okay, you go all the way up and down here and you go all the way up and down there um, to try to cover ground. So you have to use straighter paths. And I did an experiment with Argentine ants um, on Earth, so nothing to do with space, mm -hmm. where it turned out that the ants actually adjusted their paths according to density. When there were more of them in a small space, they used a more convoluted path and searched more carefully. And when there were fewer of them in a large space, they stretched out their paths to cover more ground. Mm. And so the experiment in the space station was asking whether a different species of ants would do the same thing. Would they, in microgravity, be able to adjust the shape of their path to cover more ground? So it's a very simple experiment, and um, I'd like to explain it because we're hoping now that kids will try it with different species of ants. And so we've posted a, um, on my lab website, we've posted a lesson plan. Um, we're um, working with teachers to try to um, get this into the classroom more, and what I really hope is that kids around the world will try it with obscure species of ants that nobody's ever looked at, um, because I think that there are probably going to be really interesting algorithms for search that we haven't discovered yet. So the experiment consists of just um, creating a rectangular space with a barrier, letting the ants into half the space, and then opening the barrier to see what happens when the same number of ants have a larger space to search. So mm. we change the density for them and look to see if they will adjust their paths. And I think that uh, different species of ants will perform very differently. In fact, the species that we used in the experiment in space was um, the pavement ant, which is very common in cities all around the country and in Europe. Um, it's not the same as the Argentine ant I did that other experiment with. And they behaved a little differently from the Argentine ants, but I have to say that in space, um, they didn't do so well, um, partly because every now and then an ant would just lift itself off the surface and start spinning around, and that kind of <laughs> messed up the relationship between density and interaction rate. So the missing part that I didn't say yet is, yeah. how do the ants know how many ants there are to help them search? They don't have a leader who can say, okay, you go over there, you go over there, so they just use the rate at which they meet. So if there are more ants around, you'll meet ants more often, and you can afford to take a more careful um, searching path. You can afford to loop around more and search more carefully because the density is higher. So they use the rate of interactions as a cue to density. Huh. But in space, they didn't get to do that so well, um, partly, I think, because they were clearly working so hard just to hold on, right. and also because every now and then the ants nearby weren't there because they were floating. <laughs> that must have been adorable. I just want to know how much R&D money went into developing those extra tiny little spacesuits. I bet those were cute. 
Yeah, the the arenas themselves were beautiful, really? but they didn't have spacesuits. The arenas were um, made of plexiglass and um, um, engineered very beautifully. Uh, and you have all kinds of research on your website so that people can do this this little experiment all over the world, which is cool. I'll, I'm going to link to that on my website. Uh, I'll link Great. to your website. Great. And, Great. Uh, you know, this, this show's international, so hopefully we can get people all over the world. Now, how, now one trick in that, and since we're talking about that, how will people be able to – I assume there's um, a list of the, the type of ant. How will they be able to let you know what experiment they did with which ant? Well, we're going to put up a, uh, an easy spreadsheet for entering the data. Mm-hmm. And um, figuring out what kind of ant you have is actually pretty easy because there's a wonderful ant website called AntWeb um, with beautiful photographs. And often it's really not that hard to figure out what kind of ant you have. Mm-hmm. But we will try to set up some process for identifying the ants um, for cases where it's harder. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Um, and where can people find you on, on the web? Well, if you look for DM Gordon, so um, my middle initial is M, DM Gordon at Stanford, you'll find me. Amazon, so Amazon Mary. Gordon, Amazon Mary. Yes. Look for Deborah Gordon in the biology department, and um, it's very easy to find. Well, that is wonderful. Uh, Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for taking so much time out. This, is, this has been eye-opening. Uh, ants are really cool little things, and what's so I think what you know the the piece I really wanted to to bring home here at the end is that this isn't really about insects. It's not about biology. I don't want people to think like, oh, this is boring school stuff. This is really you make it seem like we are learning about a new culture. You know the way you describe like their social interactions. I mean, it's like learning about a new culture because not only are you teaching us new things, but you're also relating it to things that are very close to home and very human. Uh, and it just makes it so much easier to understand, at least for me. And I'm not very smart. So thank you. Well, that's great. It's not just um, a new culture, but it's the way that a lot of other processes even inside our bodies work. So I think it's it's very widespread in nature to have systems like this without central control that just work by interaction. That's crazy. Um, well, Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks. And, and I want to thank everyone else for listening. Have a good night.